1: what happens whenever you're, you're treating the potential for a disease is that you market fear. You know, I think that's actually a really interesting thing that, that whenever you're treating the potential for a sickness, they always illustrate the worst case scenario and say, you wanna prevent this. And the worst case scenario can be just like a fraction of a percent, right? And then they can still focus on that and make it bigger than life so that the average person who has no chance of getting sick will feel compelled to take it. So again, remember, pharmaceutical companies can't talk directly to patients, but if public health then becomes their spokesperson without any need to divulge any conflicts of interest, then what you get is direct pharmaceutical control over the narrative.
0: Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and welcome to the Deanna McCloud show. Uh, we are so privileged to uh, have Deanna back again that I almost feel like we're going to need to create her own podcast. For those of you who want that, maybe you're going to have to just reach out to us and say, yes, get a Deanna McCloud show started permanently. For now, you are still just on the open mic with Michael Thiessen show. So Deanna, thanks for coming. It's uh, great to see you there hunkered down in your bunker. Um, where are you?
1: Uh, I'm in North Carolina right now. We're on our uh, cro- cross North America tour, uh, so we're making our way. We went south, and now we're going east. So pretty excited, except for the rain.
0: That's been awesome. a lot of rain recently. Ooh, um, I too am shooting in in my trailer today too, because the the deck is just a little too rainy and cold uh, in Georgetown, Kentucky. So um, it's great to have you on again. And as I asked you in pre production. What, what are we talking about? I love it, Michael. Like,
1: so when we were on last, I was mentioning to you that we've been doing some research on conflicts of interest uh, in the whole COVID narrative. And you were like, when that's ready to go, I need to have you on. And so Nicole booked me in and now you've forgotten. This is great. This is
0: fantastic. <laughs> I think it was just the fact that I didn't, uh, number one, I did forget. So let's just talk about that. Number two, um, I wasn't expecting that to be like three weeks later so this is really good uh so everybody we are shooting this prior to uh christmas and you're going to listen to this just in the new year because deanna has been so uh diligent to get this research to us that we've got a few interviews booked so deanna thanks for coming on and why don't we dig into it because you know conflict of interest is a really big problem. I, w- I w- just did an interview with Lisa uh, Bildy, and we were talking about this, you know, conflict of interest. You know, if you look at Western University, for example, you know, there is a potential for tons of conflict of interest. They're building a, a, a new um, biolab. Uh, they are hoping that that biolab might be able to help them engineer uh, early response vaccinations, like vaccine products, and so then you have Western University mandating on its students these vaccine mandates. Now, again, you have to dig into it, but there's a there's a possibility of a conflict of interest. And can you imagine being a student who said, "Wait a minute, I just got three experimental shots because you wanted to build a lab and you had to maintain the relationship." With the, w- with the pharmaceutical companies in order to get the funding in place. Like this is where uh, th- this issue is a real problem uh, or a potential for a pl- problem. So why don't you go ahead and uh, share with us some of your brilliant slides as normal.
1: So here we are so it's preserving informed choice and understanding conflicts of interest and right away i just want to talk about the fact that our organization which is covid sense has collaborated with the canadian covid care alliance uh, a number of fantastic researchers there and this the presentation that i'm giving today is a joint presentation of the of the research that we've done as a company but also some of the research that they've done so i just want to give a shout out to them right out right out of the gate um, so for those of your, uh, you know, review audience that don't uh, know who I am. So I own a medical research company. I founded it in 2000. Um, and, uh, we've been specializing in research in cancer, uh, specifically, and our specialty is writing guidelines. And so as I'm walking through this presentation, I'm going to talk about, uh, the 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 guideline review process how you know how do we actually get the standards of care that we have like if they say that you know the vaccines are what you need to take how did we actually arrive there a lot of people don't actually understand the process but that's our day in day out work um, so we have a team of researchers uh, and together we've we've published about forty reviews and and guidelines in the cancer area and in March 2020 we we pivoted uh, and started really actively researching the COVID space, because we saw that there was a lot of major issues with um, the way the guidelines and the recommendations were being made. And so we needed to dig in and analyze the data, which is some of the stuff that we've talked about, Michael. Um, And also, one of the things that I have in terms of my background is I've had 10 years of industry experience. So in the medical marketing and sales fields uh, with pharmaceutical companies. So I actually understand that perspective. And so a lot of what I know, and I'm going to share to you, with you today is a lot of what uh, I have I just know to be the case because I've come from that space. So we're, we're looking at it from a pharmaceutical perspective. We're looking at it from a guideline development perspective. Uh, and of course, within the COVID context. So one of the things that we need to remember about um, informed consent or informed choice is that it's a fundamental human right, and it's been designed to protect the patient's autonomy, self determination, bodily integrity, and well being. So the whole idea that we we actually develop a drug or an intervention or make a re- rec- recommendation for a therapy is because it should be principally focused on the patient's well being. Um, And in order for the patient to decide what's good for them, they actually need to know the risks and the benefit of a given treatment, as well as all the alternative treatment options. And they need to be able to choose free of coercion, fear, or any type of incentive. So they have to be free to choose what is good for them. And so our whole medical system traditionally has been based upon facilitating that relationship, and one of the things that we've done is, you know, in our medical system, we have a, a patient, which is this guy here has a doctor, which is this guy here. Um, and the doctor understands the complexities of the medical area. And they have a bond with their patient, and a commitment to them to be to the, to their well being, and to help understand and navigate treatment data, and to help them tailor a choice that's good for them. And that's called personalized medicine. And I don't know if you're you're familiar with that, but it's the personalization of care based on data or literature or an understanding of how any number of treatments might work and the presentation of that to a patient so that they can choose something that's good for them. So what's really important here is that there's a clinical benefit ratio. So what that really means is that the benefits of a treatment outweigh the risk. So this is higher than this. So there's more benefit than there is risk for this patient. That's an individual clinical benefit ratio. And then that means that the patient can say, well, you know what, this is a good choice for me because the benefits outweigh the risks for me. Does that make sense to you?
0: It does. It's really important too, because you know, um, folks who have listened to my interview with Lisa will already know that the alternative is a doctor representing the government or representing another body and treating the patient impersonally. Like the, the alternatives would be this. Oh, um, I'm suffering from mild depression. Okay. Doctor. Okay. What are the, what are the three things the government wants me to do? Okay. The the government would like me to save, uh, healthcare costs. So this person, uh, now, uh, meets the requirements for MAID. So let's advise in order to please the government, let's advise uh, doctor assisted suicide. Let's, 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 let's save the money of the bill. Uh, so, so what happens is in reverse of this is not true medicine at all. It is simply policy um, and uh, societal management. It's, it's basically people management. It, it, it actually takes the individual out of the equation Completely. The the moment this doctor-patient relationship, this informed consent, this clinical benefit ratio departs from the conversation, you are literally left with, I have a sick person, what is the cheapest way or what is the most convenient way to deal with them? And that may include eliminating them. That may include dismissing them. That may include leaving them completely to the side. And so, um, yeah, this is a very important discussion and of course you've explained it in in its technical terms so that everybody can understand
1: mhm uh, and i think that we have to really acknowledge that much of our healthcare system has been based on this principle this understanding that we want to help people and that we want good for them And then a whole system has kind of arisen out of that, and this then and it's girded in medical ethics, which is, you know, do no harm ultimately. And so I think that that's actually something that's really important to remember, Uh, but it's also really important to understand and to be aware of when other interests start to interfere in this relationship. And to factor that in when you're making your choices.
0: Hey, friends, are you tired of having leftism ram down your throat everywhere you turn? Like you're just exhausted where you go into a business and they want to promote leftist ideas and causes to you all day long? I know I'm tired of this. And, you know, this is why we need to have new buying habits. So why are you buying coffee from companies that hate you and your freedoms? I, I can think of the day that I stopped desiring to support Starbucks. It was two years ago. Well, look, Resistance Coffee is here for you. I was just talking to Nicole in our production studio. She really wants to drink Resistance Coffee, but she's not yet gone and bought Resistance Coffee. Well, look, you can enjoy their wonderful taste and their fresh roasted coffee, Nicole, with the knowledge that your money is not funding Lefton's causes. So in fact, folks, Resistance Coffee gives 10% of every purchase to organizations that are fighting for constitutional freedoms for Canadians. This is partly why we partnered with Resistance. They have been gracious to us from day one. So Resistance Coffee roasts specialty-grade beans, which means you're getting high-end quality coffee that's roasted fresh for you. So be done with stale grocery store coffee. Uh, or uh, picking up your $4 uh, coffee cup somewhere else, support Canadian freedoms, go to resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC and join the resistance today. Nicole, go out and buy it today. Stop hesitating. Go online. You can do it. Resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC.
1: So what I'd love to walk through right now is, is some of those, uh, Influences and some of those interests within the context of how a government would or you know medical authorities would arrive at recommending a given treatment, and I think that it's really important to understand within the context of COVID because a lot of people are being presented with choices, uh, but I don't think they're really under they're getting the full understanding of what the risks and benefits are, and I definitely don't think that they're being privy to the alternate alternate um, interests that are at play. So. What I love to do with this presentation is really help your audience understand all of the interests that are are at work here so that when they are making choices, they can be aware of that and and make ones that are uh, wise for them or intelligent for them. So here is the doctor-patient relationship. And so one of the things that a lot of people need to understand is that you have one doctor usually and a number of patients. And this doctor is in a fiduciary relationship with these patients in the sense that he's obliged to work for their well-being. That's technically the relationship that they're in. Um, and he basically has to select from a number of health candidate approved drugs, um, that have been studied and published, you know, usually there, there's preclinical research, clinical research, you know, doctors presented at conferences, it goes to journals, it's published, and then once it's published, then Health Canada reviews that to ensure that there's a minimum number of safety data, and then those agents are available to the doctor to present as options for treatment to the patient. So if it's not approved by Health Canada, he can't offer it. And anything that is approved by Health Canada, he's actually able to offer it to his patients. Now, there's a lot of times where there's recommendations like it's been approved for a specific purpose, but it is totally uh, legitimate for doctors to take off label drugs meaning it's not approved for that indication and to use it in another area because not all um not all drugs will be have the the burden of research that would allow them to be approved for the um for all indications. So doctors have the facility of choosing between those. But anytime a doctor does offer a treatment, he needs to present the benefits and the risks. But you can imagine that in an area, let's just say for cancer research, which is the one that I'm involved in, there's a lot of research that's ongoing. And so it becomes overwhelming for a doctor to be able to understand and to read all that published literature, especially if he's you know, a GP and it's not his specialty. So our system has evolved to develop guidelines and guidelines are basically general recommendations that are put forth. They're recommendations in which a number of specialists, a diverse panel of specialists, you can see all the different colors, um, they come together and they are the ones that are doing the research on the drugs. They're the ones who are doing the preclinical and the clinical research. And so... The ones who know the drugs best, they basically look at them all. You know, they publish their work in conferences. uh, They present it at conferences. They publish it in journals. They review the published literature. They consider what's available. And then they factor all of that in. And they basically say, for instance, if you have this particular, you know, ailment uh there's this you know maybe four or five different options and so what you'd want is you'd want in the gu- in the group of specialists that are preparing those guidelines you'd want somebody to re- to represent every single possible option of treatment for that patient so for instance, I'm working in a, a a liver cancer guideline right now. And in this guideline, we have radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, interventional radiologists, regular radiologists, and hepatologists. So we have a broad spectrum of specialists. They all work together. There's tons of Zoom calls where people debate data and they look at it. Um, You know, our our group specifically is specializes in collecting all the published literature and organizing it so they can they can review it. And then they come up with guidelines or statements that say, you know, if you have this condition, you should take this drug. Or if you have this condition, the, the results say that this is the best drug for you. And these guidelines, if prepared appropriately, um, we will have a diverse background of, of doctors. The doctors will come from geographically distinct locations. So in Canada, you'd have east and west and center represented. Um, the guidelines would basically weigh the level of evidence. So they'd be saying, you know, there's lots of evidence to say that this is a good choice for you, and we all agree on it. And then if you have a lot of evidence, like level one evidence, meaning like a randomized controlled trial, and everybody in the group agrees that it's a good thing, then that would be called a strong recommendation. However, if you have very weak evidence, let's just say, uh, you know, a retrospective analysis of a COVID database, And you don't have you only have one type of specialist that says it's a good idea, then that would be technically should be a weak recommendation. So just keep that in mind when we're going through the COVID scenario because one of the things we're gonna we're gonna look at how this is the way that it normally happens, diverse group of people prepare guidelines. Then the the doctor here receives those guidelines and then he understands the unique clinical history treatment history, personal preferences of all of his patients. And he basically says, here are the options that are available, you know, and I recommend A, B, C, or D for you based on your particular situation. And you're free to choose which one you want to go with. So this is how guidelines should work. And this is when they're working positively to enhance and, and bolster the doctor-patient relationship. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yes, I can't wait for you to parse out then where all of the conflicts of interest would come. Because, again, I I think everybody is more aware now that these safety measures are there to make sure that, let's say, the green specialist has shares in said company that that doesn't outweigh or let's say the blue specialist says, Hey, I, you know, this is, this is what we've all reviewed. Why don't we actually start a pre clinical trial for a different uh, cocktail uh, for a different drug that might be more effective than the ones we've been evaluating. And by the way, I, you know, I, I, I want to be a part of the, the, the development team. So all, all of the players here already within this, Scheme of things have vested interests there. All before you get to the doctor level, in the in the research Mm -hmm. and development level. So um, yeah, so you're absolutely
1: right that we have to look. Yeah,
0: yeah. So the guidelines are there to keep everybody's interests in check some way, so that you actually get a a, you know a rigorous guideline. You, Mm -hmm. You you know you get a medical guideline, not just a Marketed guideline. Hmm. Yeah. So
1: let's uh, let's keep going because I know that we've got we're sensitive for time. So it's, by sensitive, it what is... she
0: means is that we only have an hour and forty five <laughs> minutes. Everybody, that's. <laughs>
1: I know we, we blew past that last time. So I want to make sure that we get fit this into one one episode this time. We will.
0: I won't interrupt you anymore. But I do want to interrupt everybody. Now, Look, We did two videos last time where Deanna did section one and section two. Um, a was really well received and we had a lot of views on that. But I think we made an error in titling it. And, it, and it, it, the second one was released with a similar title. And I think everybody just assumed it was just the same one. Go go back and listen to Deanna's uh, episode with us on myocarditis. Everybody that that needs mm-hmm. the views need to increase on that one. It's a really good research, and then come back and have another hour and a half experience with us here today. So keep going, Deanna.
1: Come, oh boy. Um, so here, one of the things that I just want to emphasize here is really important that Canadian guidelines work within the Canadian context in the sense of looking at at treatments that are available that have been approved by Health Canada and also all the other treatments that are available and to factor all of those in. And at times when we're preparing guidelines, we do look to American guidelines. Like for instance, um, I work in the area of oncology and so we'll look to see what the you know, ASCO guidelines look like, or maybe we'll look at the European guidelines uh, to kind of factor in to see what other people are doing. But it's, it's, Uh, important for us to always go through the literature it's always changing anyways to weigh the options that are available for canada and to actually write a guideline that reflects what would be appropriate treatment for canadians Uh, and so i really want to emphasize the fact that these are are light circle like light indicators here in the sense that they should not be directing guidelines in canada they should be only guidelines that are are basically something where um you know, we might consider them or consult them, uh, but it's really important that the specialists in Canada be the ones who actually decide what the treatments should be in Canada. So, one of the things that we I want to look at through this particular presentation are financial conflicts of interest, research conflicts of interest, and political conflicts of interest. So all of those, we should be aware of all of those because there's they're always at play within any context, uh, and especially the medical context. So just so that people are really clear what a conflict of interest is, it's when a party has a competing interest that may interfere with providing the best treatment for patients. The most common one is, of course, the financial conflict of interest, and an obvious player there would be a pharmaceutical company. Um, But there's also research conflicts of interest, and Michael, you've already talked about that. You've talked about how said researcher might have invested invested all of their career in a certain treatment, Uh, and so they might be very, very invested in making sure that it's approved and used because it's their baby, right? Um, or perhaps it's going to get them to the next level in their research career. Uh, and then, of course, there's political conflicts of interest. You can be uh, in charge of another group of people and, you know, you want to assert your power or you want to bow to, um, you know, maybe people in the global arena uh, that you want to be able to uh, please. And so then you might be Uh, influenced by political outcomes in the sense of it could be related to your research career and furthering your career, or even in our government, it could be basically bowing to political pressure from other countries. So all of these things need to be considered, and all of them may be influencing this sacred doctor-patient relationship. And what I'd love to do is kind of walk through some of the areas that I've seen uh, that conflict and Present those to you, and I'm not saying that it's going to be complete because you know it would take more than an hour and forty-five minutes. But I've I've selected out some of the ones that I think are probably most pertinent and that everybody who's making medical treatment decisions should be aware of, especially in the COVID context. So one of the the financial conflicts of interest that a lot of people are not aware of, uh, and this is specifically in the case for vaccines, and I have firsthand experience with this, is that we doctors practice medicine within the medical legal framework. And what that means is that they're susceptible to being sued by their patients. And because they're susceptible to being sued by their patients, they actually have to carry insurance. Uh, and it's medical liability insurance. And so the insurance companies are in the business of making money. And so what they need to know is they need to say, you know, how do I know if a doctor is not practicing appropriately and could be sued? And so then basically they say, well, what I need is I need a standard of practice that I need to bolt my insurance policy onto uh, so that I can be ensured that this doctor is practicing according to guidelines or is practicing appropriately. And so the natural um thing to bolt it onto is a guideline where they basically have the group of specialists, they come along and they say, this is the standard of practice. And then the insurance company basically says, all right, so you need to be, you need to show that you're practicing with the context of a guideline. You know, of course you still are able to personalize care, but you need to document, for instance, if a patient refuses treatment. Um, uh, and then basically, they're like, but we can't, we can't track all the the doctors. So then the colleges are the licensing body for doctors. And so they, you know, have their own guidelines in terms of what's malpractice and not, but they also um, almost police doctors with respect to guidelines. And so what happens actually, which is interestingly, is that then your doctor, actually, there's a conflict of interest, which is represented by the red glow here on the doctor now. So he's, he has your interests in mind but a competing interest is his livelihood and his licensing and so if somebody comes along and says you know you're not following a guideline appropriately or the college says that you're not following the guideline and i you know we're going to take you under discipline or we're going to threaten your license which has actually occurred in the COVID 19 context then that doctor then is no longer completely dedicated to your interest he's now has competing interests he has to compete and balance that against his livelihood and his licensing. So and I, I would think like that like that's to an just,
0: important. Go I ahead. I just want to jump in there, Deanna, to say like th- this is not an unusual uh, scenario um, when it comes to there are other individuals that the moment those governmental guidelines changes, you have virtually you could you could replace the doctor with a pastor. And association for you know colleges for association and insurance for ins- insurance. So you had a number of insurance companies tell churches, if you stay open when the guidelines are to be closed, we won't insure you any longer. You could say take the same person for um, for for uh, you know like a restaurant. You you could you know you could um, you could take the same thing for um, an individual who is providing another service. You know they're they whenever those guidelines change and that's why the conflict of interest way up here are so important to to figure out because it actually changes below that line of guidelines as well because once the if the guidelines are perverted and overreaching then it actually is so many different uh professional industry you know so many different professionals are affected by this um so that's mm-hmm. you know, i just wanted to put that in there that that it, the you're you're explaining this in a doctor-patient relationship, but is very important, but it actually extended further to that. It became an employer-employee uh, relationship in many respects, but mm-hmm. uh, continued. Mm-hmm. So this is really good. This is really helpful.
1: So then one of the uh, interests that I want to highlight here, of course, is the pharmaceutical industry. So the first one was the medical legal context. And so we really need to be aware of that, that even though the guidelines were meant to empower doctors to further uh, their doctor-patient relationship because of the influence of insurance in the medical legal context, then all of a sudden there's competing interests and the guidelines now are serving a completely different purpose, which is to set a standard for the actual doctor. And if the guideline is an excellent guideline... And and it's well-designed and it's well-produced, then it is actually very beneficial to the doctor-patient relationship. But as you pointed out, Michael, if there's any other competing interests, then all of a sudden, boom, we've got attention there that people need to be aware of when they're making their choices. So this is the global pharmaceutical company. Now I'm actually wrote wrote global pharma here because it's really important that everybody understand that there's an incredible shift that's happened in the last 10 years in the pharmaceutical industry. I'm saying 10 years loosely. Uh, It's, it's, you know, at least 10 years. Um, And what happened is that it, you know, when I first started off in industry, everybody worked at a very local level. You had your Canadian pharmaceutical company and it had its plans and it was working with its team and it was understanding the Canadian context and it would put out, you know, uh, different marketing things and it would try and sell their drugs and develop their drugs. Um, But now what happened in the last 10 years is all the best of the best in Canada have been Launched up, and I'm imagining that this is happening all over the world, to what they call Global Pharma. So that's an organization, an entity that's set somewhere in the world, and it basically creates strategy for the whole, for all the different countries. So what we have is a global coordinated effort now based on technology and, you know, pharma's ability to coordinate, and it has an incredible ability to do synchronicity. So one plan can then be implemented right across many, many countries. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. It um, might sound but a little familiar. Have... <laughs> right, a little shocking, right? So now the global pharmaceutical companies are beholden to their shareholders, and they're in the business of profiting their shareholders. Um, and the way that they do that is they create new therapeutics. They have patents about 10 20 years in Canada. Uh, within the 20 years they have they, they, they'll need to research the product for multiple indications. Um, promote that product and encourage adoption of that product or use of that product by the doctor. Now, if it's an excellent product and it really helps the patient, then that's actually a really good thing. And the doctor can recommend that to the patient. Of course, you've got the guidelines that are here as a doctor's tool. Uh, And if a doctor uses a certain drug, well, that actually creates profits. And then the profits go back to the global pharma, which then pleases the shareholders. So you can see that this doctor-patient relationship is smack down in the middle of the profit sequence of global pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and of course, it's very much focused on new therapeutics so that they can make the most profits. And again, this could be very positive for the doctor-patient relationship if the new therapeutic is is very well-studied, you know, well-developed, and meets a, a felt clinical need. Uh, for instance, you know, immunotherapy recently in cancer research has been a breakthrough. So many people's cancers, you know, by by activating their immune systems again, I've been kept at bay for, for almost, you know, five to 10 years. You know, that was a breakthrough. And we were so excited to have that breakthrough. Um, and we're so, and a lot of doctors really got behind that. And, and that was a good thing for patients. So, what I wanna emphasize here is that again, within the right context and the right way, this can be a very positive thing for patients and doctors. Uh, but again, to your point, Michael, if there, if it starts to get distorted a little bit um, or inappropriately promoted or inappropriately applied, then we can start to get competing interests, which then patients, people need to be very much aware that are at play. So what I wanted to do here is talk about the different ways that pharmaceutical company influence shows up. So I've written down pharma dollars are more and more funding both preclinical and clinical research. And then again, that's been a really big shift. So since the global pharma, since pharmaceutical companies can work at a global level and they're able to coordinate research and they're able, so for them, they wanna get their research trials done more quickly. Um, So if they're they're conducting research in North America, for instance, and they're they're, they're, um, restricted to North America, then there's only so many patients and only so many doctors and only so many studies that can be competed. So in order to be able to expedite their research agenda, what they do is they coordinate at a global level. So then they'll do, they'll recruit patients from Canada and Brazil and, you know, Belgium and Florida, you know, like all over the place. And so by by coordinating at a global level, then you all of a sudden get um, you know trials that are done quicker, then you have new drugs that are available more quickly. But what actually happens is then you have more influence by pharma. And the because Canadian researchers can't compete with recruitment, then a lot of the breakthroughs and a lot of the research momentum ends up being at a global level which is by definition, coordinated by pharmaceutical companies that work and are able to work at a global level, whereas a lot of Canadian researchers or or North American researchers can only work at a local level. So this ability to access global resources and coordinate them um, basically creates the potential for conflict with pharmaceutical companies. And so here it's called managing pharma conflicts. And the standard practice for managing this conflict of interest is a disclosure. So if, a, you know, so for instance, if a, um, a pharmaceutical company sponsors the trial, then they would basically say this trial has been sponsored by, and then they'd have to say the pharmaceutical company. And if any of the authors are, are part of the the study and its development, then they would have to list the author's conflicts of interest, they would have to say something like, so-and-so has stocks, Uh, so-and-so is an employee, Um, blah, 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 blah. And so disclosing the conflict doesn't actually eliminate the influence. And I think that's really important to to remember that although it's the standard for managing it, it actually doesn't eliminate the conflict or eliminate the influence. Um, I don't want to really want to get into it, but I, you know, I was working on a guideline that was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company, no names named, and the actual people within the company were actually writing and uh, orchestrating the the research or the content development for this particular guideline. Uh, in the manner in which they were portraying. You know the benefits of their drug versus the benefits of the other drug were skewed. It wasn't really appropriate. It was, it was, it was, you know, subtle but, um, you know, obvious. Uh, and so they have vested interest in making their research look good versus other people's research. And so we just have to be aware that if they're if they're make if they're making money and if their careers are advancing by a drug being adopted, um, then there's a temptation to make the results of that trial look more favorable, which would be to enhance the benefits and minimize the safety. And the same could be said about the specialists, if they're involved in the clinical trials, you know, that would be the research bias. Um, They would also have to disclose any conflicts of interest that they have. Um, And then, you know another thing too, is if they present it at the conferences or if they present at journal or if they publish it in the journals, again, it's all about disclosing the conflicts of interest. So anybody, you know your doctor, especially, but anybody who's looking at clinical trial results should immediately ask who's who's paid by who and then factor that in um, to the, to the outcomes. And one of the things that we do is if we read a research paper and we see that the benefits have been enhanced, uh, you know, the conclusions about the drugs benefits have been enhanced and the safety has been minimized, then immediately we'll start to look for conflicts of interest. And we'll, we'll pull those all up and we'll analyze them to see what's been going on there. Cause we know what, what should be done. And if it falls short of that standard, or if it's a little bit off, you know, off target, then we'll immediately, that'll trigger us to say, okay, we should start looking. And, and of course, anybody who's doing informed decision-making should always be factoring in these conflicts. They're, they're related to research. They can be arising from pharma. So pharma could be, you know, sponsoring the trials or directly paying some of these people who actually run the trials. Uh, but you should always be looking at that and it should be disclosed in the conferences and the journals and in the published literature. So, Another thing here is, well, I guess this is the same thing where the pharmaceutical companies are, are maybe, you know, paying for a specialist to go to a conference or, you know, paying for uh, a specialist to have a research fellow, you know, those are worth $50,000, right? So there's all sorts of direct, uh, I guess, engagement with specialists, um, you know, I want you to write a paper for me. I want you to go to a conference for me. I want you to present this result. Could you be this principal investigator? And there's all sorts of money that is exchanged between these doctors and the pharmaceutical companies. But if they ever publish anything, then basically you would have to go and look to see, they have they are required to, uh, as a matter of practice, list all of the conflicts that they have, any money that they've received from pharmaceutical companies, either for other purposes or for research purposes. And then finally another check in the system these gray areas are meant to say that there's the, the it's supposed to stop the influence is whenever health canada is doing a review they should have some sort of outside body that helps them with an independent evaluation or they they are meant to be the the body that's independent, that evaluates the drugs. But there's a couple of things that, you know, we need to know about Health Canada is that they actually rely on the research that pharmaceutical companies package about their drug. And then they often don't do any primary research themselves, but at least they're an independent, hopefully medically qualified body that is looking at the data carefully to ensure that safety standards are met before they allow that drug to come out on the market in Canada um, so there's in terms of managing conflicts of interest there's three checks there's one there the disclosure related to literature there's the check in the the independent evaluation by Health Canada make sure that safety standards are met and then there's the if you publish anything or present anything you need to disclose any type of interaction or money that's been transferred between you. Uh, in a pharmaceutical company.
0: So I have two thoughts just before you move on. Sure. Um, uh, first of all, just going to the slide uh, that we've got in front of us here, the one arrow around conferences and journals, um, that that would be a full circular uh, arrow in in the sense that the the research, you know, like the interaction with conferences and other journals is that there's other research programs going on potentially attempting to sell their own product that's in preclinical and clinical research. And so there's this idea of competing products out there that are dialoguing with one another so that when the published literature comes out, you've really had a robust conversation about these things. So that my thought when we're watching all of this, my thought is how important is competition? Because again, the more a global pharma industry uh maybe maybe is one sided you know competition is then taken out, and then the independent individuals who are interacting with this research get eliminated. You know, competition in the medical industry is really important, especially to to increase the validity of the published literature and then, man, the other thing I'm thinking is thou shalt not lie, like how important is it? That the Lord's command simply to be honest throughout this whole process. So yeah, so Big Pharma sent me $50,000 to go to a conference and, and learn about this other thing. I came back from that conference and said, yeah, no, the product's not sufficient. Like, How important is it still, even in a paid relationship, for researchers to just be honest about their findings and how important that is. Mm-hmm. And if you take those two bedrocks out, if you take competition and then you, t- you know, free market competition, and then you take out honesty, man alive, by the time we get to the doctor, like I'd be having trouble believing anything anyone said. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I, and so uh, it, it's really helpful, Deanna, unpacking this for, for us. And again, just, for everybody to remember those principles are so vitally important for the integrity of this entire system, because again, we're not against people not making money. I'm, I'm trying to monetize this podcast. I, you know, it would be great if I could, if I could enjoy my life, uh, shooting videos and talking to intelligent people like yourself. Um, so we get it, you know, people want to be paid for what they do. The, the, the check is always going to be free market competition and and a good healthy dose of god's prescription of honesty you eliminate those two things and man this is one big org chart that just all i see is big pharma dollars
1: yeah and i you know i did say that i was selectively reporting things but it's important to know that pharma is the one that puts on the conferences for the doctors right um, and then the doctors present their findings, and then there's scientific discourse and debate. So they keep each other honest. Like the, they're presented, and everybody has a chance to, to to review it, and people have a chance to question it. Uh, in the journals, the journals are paid by pharma uh, through advertising dollars, uh, but the check there is basically peer review. So you know, if you were to present something to the New England Journal of Medicine, for instance, they have reviewers that understand that particular area. And if you've made some sort of flaw or you've exaggerated a claim or something, you should have a check at the journal level as well that basically calls them out. And so, you know, for instance, if we've done a paper, they're like, you know, we don't think your methodology is that great. You know, we want you to shore this up or add another, you know, database to your search or, you know, you you should have listed such and such, right? And then basically they help us improve the quality of our papers and our publications. Um, but again, you know, I could actually add pharma dollars up here and pharma dollars up here, and then the check here would be peer review, and the check here would be open scientific debate at a conference, right? So again, if, you know, it's it's a little bit everywhere because it's expensive to develop drugs. Um, but I just want to focus in on one area here is that traditionally, when a lot of the regulations that are in place right now in Canada were were prepared, pharmaceutical companies were very local and they knew um, that if they, that, I mean, ideally what they want is to get to the patient because the reason why they want to get to the patient is because the patient doesn't know any better, right? The average person who doesn't understand medical, doesn't have a medical background, you know, they they just don't understand what all the the charts and the numbers and the data means. They really do need an interpreter or translator for them. Uh, and so, because they knew that they could mislead the public easily by exact, it would be easy to exaggerate benefits and minimize risks for the general public. Um, there is regulation in place in Canada. That basically prevents pharmaceutical companies from from talking directly to patients. You're not allowed to do direct, you know, commercials for specific drugs in Canada. Like if you if you turn on the the commercials in the states, you, you've got full on commercials that are advertising drugs in the states. But in Canada, you're limited to only being able to. Um, you know, advertise the need for a drug or an indication, but you actually can't advertise the drug in the same way, technically, although I think some people have kind of gotten around that, but that is where the, the standard is. And so pharmaceutical companies are limited to talking to the doctor um, because the doctor has the medical background and, and people feel that, you know, they should be in a position to be able to, um, you know, discern whether something is is appropriately presented uh, or whether there is, you know, more benefits than risks for, for a given drug. Um, however, in the past, there has been, you know, a lot of pharma influence in the sense of the whining and the dining and the traveling and the fancy hotels and the, the retreats and all this kind of stuff, especially, you know, a couple decades ago. Um, and there's, that's been reined in a lot. So, you know, you're not allowed to go to, a, you know, you're allowed to meet at a hotel, but not at a, at a resort. You know, and so there's guidelines that have been put in place to try and tame the the, the whining and dining influence uh, for doctors. But just stay in note, and there's regulation in place that protects pharma from directly communicating to patients. Um, but I'm, we're going to talk later about how pharma has managed to circumvent that in the COVID-19 moment, but this is actually what's in place. Uh, and this should be the, the doctor should be the only one that is actually relaying medical information to you. Um, although of course, you can understand why pharmaceutical companies would want to get their hands on the, the patient, right the, the um, people who might not have the, the the right background because they might be easily swayed. So I'm just going to shift gears and talk about. So everything up until this point has been really drawing really heavily on my understanding of how the system works by my guideline research work, uh, specifically around treatments for cancer. So in cancer, basically, um, you know, you you have a a drug, you know, or you have a disease or a condition. Let me just say, I'll I'll switch to this. So like, let's just say here. So prostate cancer. That's a very common cancer, right? Uh, so from a pharmaceutical point of view, there's lots and lots of people who have prostate cancers. So the way that they would talk about that is they would say, that's a really big market, right? Uh, which means that if you can get your drug approved and used in anybody that needs prostate, that has prostate cancer, that's a lot of patients, a lot of potential to sell drugs. So a lot of market, it's a big market. Um, heart disease is another really great market and heart disease is particularly interesting because, uh, what you do is you move from just treatment like, okay, you have, uh, you know, high cholesterol to prevention. Uh, you, I'm going to help you prevent a heart attack. Or I'm going to help you prevent, uh, you know, your arteries clogging up. So I'm going to start giving you, you know, you have heart disease, but I'm going to start giving you something. Early so that we prevent it from happening, right? So you can see how, you know, if you just have an infection, that's just a small market. But then, you know, if you escalate, you can get higher and higher. And so, pharmaceutical companies, when they're thinking about where they're going to strategically invest, they always want to invest in the biggest possible market. So, of course, vaccines are an incredible market because what you do is you move from having to treat people with conditions to being able to treat anybody. So you can treat healthy people, even healthy babies, and basically say what I'm going to do, what I'm going to treat you, what I'm doing now is I'm treating the potential for you to get sick. And by treating the potential to get sick, then you actually increase your market multiple fold. Uh, and so that's why pediatric vaccines, you know, there was, I think, a schedule of eight or something when I was younger. And I think it's now like something crazy, like 36 vaccines for kids now, right? Like they just get everything in the dog's breakfast. And that's because everybody wants in on the pediatric vaccine market because all that you have to do is be born and then you get a vaccine. So it's a really big market and it's, it, there's a lot of interest in that. But what's even better than like a pediatric vaccine would be a, seasonal vaccine or a respiratory vaccine because respiratory viruses change a lot. They mutate. And so technically speaking, you could you could give as many as one, two, three, or four shots of a seasonal vaccine in order to be able to maintain efficacy, right? So something like a seasonal vaccine is the biggest, most possibly lucrative vaccine or market you could possibly have as a pharmaceutical company. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a cult-like fervor around vaccines, you know, and whenever I see that type of cult-like fervor, you know, like vaccines are always good. I mean, no drug is ever always good. There's always a risk benefit ratio for absolutely every single agent and more so, more scrutiny, more so for vaccines because you're giving them to healthy people. Uh, but when you see really charged, political, politically charged terms like anti-vaxxers, that to me, when I'm doing the research, I look at that and I say, okay, what that means is that somebody has something to hide. It's almost like when I look at a study and I see that the, the benefits are exaggerated and the risks minimized, I say, okay, who's who's benefiting here? What other interests are at play? And so if you see really politically charged areas like, you know, the vaccine area, and you see terms like anti-vaxxer and this kind of rabid, you know, censorship and cancellation of anybody that has an alternative view, then you know that somebody has orchestrated that, right? And, you know, if I look at my chart here, I would say it is very likely that the person who is going to profit handsomely is the person who's orchestrated it. I can't actually say that for sure, But I definitely know that it would be in the best interests of people who are going to profit incredibly off of these vaccines uh, to be working their media contacts um, to to be able to create this type of excitement uh, and this charged arena, because it would basically eliminate people from looking at safety, which is one of the, 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 the major drawbacks of most vaccines. Most vaccines are really only ever studied for a few years, and they never actually use a clinical endpoint. They often, more than more often than not, use uh, what you call a surrogate endpoint, which is basically some sort of thing that you can detect immediately like antibodies that basically they then say is a surrogate or predicts for protection from the disease long term. Although they rarely ever actually do those studies, so you know. Okay. Go. Ahead.
0: So, so I just want to jump in there with, you know, three three thoughts. Um. So number one, when we're talking about this, it's it's almost hard for me to keep a straight face in the sense that oh, so like the perfect scenario would be like if I had a a vaccine market that the government forced people to have so that I could make the greatest amount of profit and every single individual had to be coerced to do it. That would be a pretty perfect profit scenario. The second thing I want to talk about is just like an example of, of, of this being preventative medicine, meaning, meaning I am... I'm treating someone for potentially getting sick and potentially this being good. You know, the U S border right now is closed to the unvaccinated for COVID-19, but the Canadian border is open. And if you think about it just a number of weeks ago, a number of months ago, someone could go to the Canadian border and be perfectly sick and get through because the mandate is about the vaccine status or a number of months ago you could go to the border and be perfectly healthy and be denied based upon the vaccine status neither of those situ- situations has anything to do with transmission it's it, it it's your vaccine status because you know i i may have something Uh, but you don't know, or I do have something and you don't know. And the only litmus test is the vaccine, but in reality, that's not preventing transmission at all. So, so it's the, it's a, you know, coercion in this area would just be the maximum profitability. You really are selling the myth of potential treatment. And, and, and when I say myth, I mean, People have the choice to say, if I want this preventative medicine, then I I can take it. But then the third thought that I had on those multiple variations, Deanna, is that, you know, if the strain is changing, you're also making money on whether or not something works or not. You know, you're marketing it as this is an influenza vaccine, knowing full well, and and if there's informed consent there, people still knowing full well that it just reduces... Uh, or it, it, it has a possibility of treatment and that possibility of treatment then has the possibility of reducing risk. Um, it just means it can be a very ineffective product and still make and be marketed for tremendous profit. Th- those were the three thoughts that I
1: had. Yeah. Well, I think that what you're saying, for instance, if it's, if it's for a condition that you actually have, what you could do is you can get the drug and you can see if it's working or not. Right right so so you'll actually say oh look it, it either works or it doesn't so there's some sort of concrete tangible sign that this is actually a good product or not right with the vaccine you're only ever treating the idea of getting sick right and, and the so opposite works as replaces? well right you,
0: you can't you, you if you're not sick and then you take the drug and then you get sick there's no correlation there uh, there, there's no cause and effect where if you're sick and you take a drug and it makes you feel sicker you're immediately going okay wait a minute my sickness got worse the drug's not working where if I take the drug when I'm perfectly healthy and then I get sick later I have no idea the efficacy or the negative effects it's not just the positive effects yes that's a really good point Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and so what happens whenever you're, you're treating the potential for a disease is that you market fear, right? Fear is your number one tool for marketing. So then, you know, like, for instance, I remember when the chickenpox vaccine came out, right? You know, I was sitting there with my kids in the doctor's office, and then you see these, these kids, and they've got their eyes droopy, and they've got little marks all over their body. And, you know, the pamphlet says, would you ever do this to your child? you know, this kind of thing, right? Get the get the chickenpox vaccine right away, right? And I, I'm not going to comment on whether it worked or not. But I definitely looked at that pamphlet and felt compelled to go into the doctor's office to get my kids vaccinated, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, and I had to kind of grab a hold of myself and say, Okay, well, what are what you know, is this actually really? Is it is it really serious? Or is it just ugly, you know, and, you know, and, and started to try and work through, you know, my try and manage that emotional response that I had when I saw those dire, terrible looking pamphlets right? So, you know, I think that's actually a really interesting thing that that whenever you're treating the potential for a sickness, they always illustrate the worst case scenario and say, you want to prevent this and the worst case scenario can be just like a fraction of a percent, right? And then they can still, focus on that and make it bigger than life so that the average person who has no chance of getting sick will feel compelled to take it because they're being scared into taking it. Right. Uh, so there's a tremendous potential for, um, a manipulation because you're only ever treating the idea of being sick. And so as a manufacturer, if you want to compel, the greatest number of people and doctors to recommend and, and patients to take, then you basically have to emphasize the worst case scenario in order to sell your drug. And nobody can ever argue with that because a lot of the time, some of these sicknesses do have a worst case scenario. If you're a high risk patient and you're immunocompromised, I mean, things can get pretty bad, right? It's, it's not, not true. It's just not true for everybody. And I think that that's the part that gets lost in translation a lot of the time when we're looking at vaccines. And I think it's just important for audiences, your audience, people generally to know that, that this is the main tool for selling things when it comes to vaccines and to to just be on guard for any types of emotional manipulation, you know, however it might, whatever forms it might take.
0: You know, folks, today in our episode, we were talking about all of the monetary incentives that people have to lie to you and um what we're trying to do in many situations is dig for the truth and i want to take a moment to tell you about my friends at rocklink investment partners the team at rocklink doesn't invest your money to satisfy a woke esg goal or fall in line with the world economic forum they invest in great businesses that will protect and grow your wealth the old fashioned way. Get out of mainstream money and give the freedom lovers at Rock Link a call at 905 631 5462 and send them an email at info at rocklink with a C dot com. That's info at rocklink with a C dot com.
1: So, um, what we're going to look at now is how. The well, I think we were looking at before was how the setup has changed when we're looking at vaccines. So now we have this body called NASI, which is the one that, that informs public health to make guidelines. Uh, and now we have two different options. We have you know vaccines that can be administered within the doctor patient relationship, which again is ensuring that personalized care. And then all of a sudden we have this alternative thing here where all of a sudden we've got this kind of outpatient administration via vaccine clinic or perhaps pharmacy where uh, patients can come and get vaccines directly. Um, They don't even have to go see a doctor. So then what that does is it allows public health then to set guidelines and direct care independent of doctors and there's a couple reasons why that becomes interesting, and pharma came in. You know, it wasn't always the case that public health was involved in vaccines, but pharma, of course, you know, knowing that that is a very lucrative market, um, began to work with public health to explain that. You know, the government has this major cost of treating illness, right? Especially in a single, single payer framework that Canada has where it's all on the government for all of the treatment. Um, and so basically they came up and they, they said, Hey, you know what? How would you like it if we helped you manage costs by minimizing sickness? Right? So we know that you have, um, we know that you, are struggling under the burden of care for all of these Canadians and that you need to minimize the financial cost of things, what if we presented to you a product that would help lower disease, right? And that also could yeah. be administered independent of the doctor-patient relationship because the two greatest costs that, that they have are hospitals and the care that happens and the, the salary of doctors as well as drug costs, right? Right. So if I say that I can give you a vaccine that costs a hundred bucks, and then that would prevent you from getting people, from people getting sick and from you having to pay doctors, would that be interesting, right? And then public health was like, oh yeah, like, let's go. That sounds fantastic. And of course, public health then has this now uh, emboldened agenda or mandate to then prevent disease. Now, typically speaking, public health officials are people who aren't clinicians. They don't actually treat patients. They don't actually understand about the clinical dynamic or personalized care. Uh, there are people that probably have medical backgrounds, you know, some sort of medical background, they may or may not be a doctor or involved in infectious disease, but basically they're not in the business of treating anybody. They're just in the business of setting policy that would then help, you know, uh, create, improve the health of people. But then now all of a sudden they've got this improved mandate that not only are they just maintaining health, but they actually get to prevent disease. So that's a pretty exciting position from a career standpoint for a public health official. Um, and you know, in, in the right context, if a vaccine did actually work to prevent illness, it's not a bad thing, right? Uh, but the one thing that's really interesting is that public health officials are not required to disclose conflicts of interest when they're making recommendations. I don't know how many times we saw Teresa Tam get up there and she says, get vaccinated. But she doesn't actually tell us if she's been paid by anybody or there's no transparency uh, in terms of, you know, where she's getting her salary or how much money she made last year or anything like that. Um, And so public health, you know, one check in the system is that public health needs to work with a a group of doctors. Uh, So NASI, which is the National Association for, oh my goodness, I'm going to get the C out, for immunization. It's basically the the National Body Immunization Guidelines Body. Um, And this is actually pretty interesting because... um, Medical healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction. And so usually you have provinces and each province directs the guidelines within their province. And it's very rare that you actually get a national body that directs treatment across uh you know, provinces. So it is very fascinating that with, you know, one of the few areas, like not even in cancer, do we actually have a national body that's in charge of cancer for all of Canada. But suddenly we have this immunization council that's in charge of doing independent um, recommendations that help guide public health and help guide Health Canada. So you can imagine that uh, all that you would need to do is start to influence these guys and to start to influence these guys and you would be well on your way to being able to influence here. Right? So again, remember pharmaceutical companies can't talk directly to patients, but if public health then becomes their spokesperson without any need to divulge any conflicts of interest, then what you get is direct pharmaceutical control over the narrative.
0: And, and Deanna, what's really important for people to understand here is uh, two things. Number one, public health is supposed to be a part or, you know, health Canada is supposed to be a governmental independent player. That is a check to the process of, of the development. Some, a trustworthy uh, bureaucrat who is paid by the citizenry to represent them, to be a safeguard, not who is getting then perks on the side by another conflict of interest? Because if you were to take Health Canada and and you, the square of Health Canada and the square of public health, and you were to turn them into um, entities that were allowed their own conflict of interests, you might as well eliminate them from the process. You don't you don't need a government body to regulate the, the use of drugs that is equally paid by the same drug manufacturer as the doctors and the researchers who are trying to promote the drugs. It's supposed to be a, a balance. It's supposed to be a checkpoint, mm-hmm. yeah. not just another, not a spokesperson. In fact, spokesperson would be the opposite of what it should be uh, in, in the sense of, you know, uh, it should be a checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And then just so everybody also sees this. And again, I, I just you, you've got a great slide here. Just change that word guidelines to mandates.
1: Yeah, well, I think what, where we're heading is that this is the first time that this has ever changed to a mandate, right? That's a new level of.
0: Right. But just it goes from now a totally corrupted system not only just being able to give you guidelines where you now have to discern, but now to mandates, which leads me, I just want to read out for you. I received a forwarded email from the Ministry of Health. So this email was forwarded to me on November 28th from somebody who had received the most, uh, who had received the COVID-19 vaccine. And it says, hello, COVID-19 booster dose. I am writing you as your chief medical officer of health to strongly recommend that you get your COVID-19 fall booster dose as soon as possible. If you have not already, please note, if you have had COVID-19 recently, you should wait six months or a minimum of three months. Just note that you should wait six months or a minimum of three months. I'm not sure which one to wait Uh, after symptom onset or a positive COVID-19 test before getting the boost. And then it just goes on, like the entire email is a promotion of the uh, of the vaccine. Uh, It includes then a recommendation for flu shot. Then it recruits another layer of protection, which is masking again. And then this is all from Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's chief medical officer of health. So you, this goes back all the way to our original discussion, but you've explained it really here and it's important for us to analyze it right here. You have now, you virtually see, Kieran Moore has never uh, uh, practiced medicine with this individual that that this email was forwarded with, and you have a health, public health officer going far beyond guidelines and now speaking directly to individuals. And so... this is, um, this is, again, why what we're talking about is so important. I, I will let you take that off, but just right to your point, public health has now become a direct salesperson for Big Pharma. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, it, and the relationship started fairly innocently with this, you know, we're going to transfer the cost for the burden of care for, for flu or for whatever from you as the government to us by preventing the disease. And we're also going to give you this great big mission now is that now you're not just going to be sideline. You know, you're not the second cousin to all the doctors who are actually doing something. Now you have your own mission, which is to prevent disease. And, and you're, so you're, you're, you're actually in the care model too, right? You're not the team B anymore. Right. You're you're now part of the big guys or that you're playing with playing with the big players. Right. So I think that it's really, really important to know that there's probably some careerism in there. Um, you know, I can't say for sure whether any of them are being directly paid by pharma because I haven't done the conflicts of interest. But just that the relationship between the public health and pharma creates an indirect conflict of interest that then does relate, does translate into public health then becoming the spokesperson for pharma and remember that pharma can't talk to patients themselves so who better to talk to patients on their behalf than public health no need to disclose anything so michael can you look on that email that you got and see if kieran moore did a list of disclosures for you to say who he's being paid for what his (laughs) his salary was last year and who 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 gave that to him or how it changed over the course of of covid you know did it increase or decrease i will
0: yeah. I will look at that. If you'll just quickly Google Kieran Moore shares in Pfizer or Moderna, because I feel like he sits on the board of one of those. And um, I, I feel like that just became public information uh, quite recently. I'm actually, while you continue your presentation, I am going to- If you to... have that,
1: I want that. I'll add that in because that's that's important, right? So I'm just going to
0: I feel, like, I feel like Matthew Halleck is sitting behind in production going, Mike, don't you know that Liberty Dispatch already did a show on that conflict of interest? And uh, oh, I would give Matt thank the you. privilege right now to come out of hiding. He, you know, everybody, just so you know, whenever I'm talking to someone, Matthew Halleck is in the background just waiting to inform us and correct us. So, uh, Dr. Matthew <laughs> what, what do you got, uh, buddy? Because I know that you guys covered this. So, Doctor Kieran okay. Moore is on the Pfizer Lyme Disease Advisory Board.
1: Oh, okay. Yep.
0: We did indeed cover it on our show, which I will link into the description below.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. Back to your cave. Back to your cave. Get get off. <laughs>
1: All right. So then.
0: I'm just so joking. then here Thank we Thank you Matthew that was great So layers
1: of conflict so then we know that conflict of the public health is a conflict of interest now whether they're being paid directly by pharma or they're working in collaboration with pharma to promote vaccines that will prevent disease right which is also going to save them money so it is a conflict of interest in the sense of a financial gain for them right um, we also yeah. know that Health Canada is paid by pharma to review their drugs. They have their charged review fees. And I wanted to be able to get up here and say that it was 50% of their their operating budget that comes from pharma. But I don't know if that number is exactly right. But I do know that in the States, that's the case. Uh, I have yet to kind of Sort out my source and get it lined up with this presentation. But we do know that it's a significant amount of money that's coming into what should be a perfectly independent review by Health Canada. So then we have pharma preparing the dossiers for Health Canada and them not doing any independent review, necessarily not any independent searches of their own, is what I mean. And them also paying the salaries of the people who are doing the review. So I think that's a conflict too. And then, of course, for me, This independent group of specialists is the number one player here. And so I want to know, the. I'm going to take a closer look at this, but is there any pharma influence in the people who are actually preparing these guidelines? And so that's really important to take a look at. So... One of the things that I do want to say before we go on any further is that it's important to look at direct conflicts of interest. But one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that there's a lot of indirect or uh, there's second degree conflicts of interest that are at play. And so pharmaceutical companies have become very smart in how they move their money. So they know that if they provide research to somebody directly, let's just say, you know they want to work with a, a doctor uh, in the BC Cancer Agency um, instead of basically directly funding them because that would look bad, right? Because then everybody would question the outcomes of whatever clinical research program they had. Um, what they do is they they move the information through a nonprofit to the doctor, so the money is still coming from pharma, but now it's under the name of the BC Cancer Foundation, for instance, or you know, any number of foundations. But if you were to actually trace the money, it (laughs) comes right through to the doctor, but it then the doctor doesn't need to disclose it.
0: Sorry, I was just gonna say or 19 to zero, which is uh, one of the organizations that has been used in the last two years to speak directly to clients and it says it's an independent research group and you just look down at its sponsors and Mm -hmm. it's all sponsored by right.
1: There you go, right? So so I think it's really important that just because it's like, you know, we're a blah 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 advocacy group, well, who pays for those that advocacy, right? Um we're such and such research group or, you know, we're we're all about increasing vaccine uptake. You know, who's paying that and who's giving them their script? I mean it's really important to take a look at that. And I'm not saying that pharma is in it all the time or that some of the money that they're giving isn't good and it isn't producing good research. But as an intelligent, informed decision maker, you do need to realize that money is just not what's being disclosed up front. There's backdoor money coming in through nonprofits as well. So what I want to just look at here is now before we talked about how it, you know, Canada should do its own guidelines that they're usually provincially driven, very rarely nationally driven, right? Um, And they should be independent and customized for Canada. But all of a sudden with COVID, all of a sudden we were taking marching orders from the World Health Organization. Now, interestingly enough, the World Health Organization's main sponsor or supporter is the Gates Foundation. Uh, And Gates Foundation is heavily, heavily invested in global pharma. So here we have the main sponsor for WHO being uh, profiting off of global pharma. So then here you've got that secondary influence coming from global pharma to the World Health Organization, um, which then moves down and works in Con, um, in collaboration with the NIAID, which is the National Institute of Health and Immunization Division, and the CDC, which is the public health arm of the NHS, which is the National Institute of Health and um, National Health Service in the states, and it, and based on the Bob Dole Act, the By Dole Act um, in 1980s, basically researchers. Uh, at the NIH can actually put out patents on things, uh, and then basically collaborate with global pharma to create drugs and then get paid for, uh, you know, every time that global pharma sells something, they actually get paid royalties. Uh, and so uh, I believe the NIH has a patent on the modified spike protein that's used in all of the vaccines. So on one hand, they're profiting off of the sale of each vaccine by receiving royalties, and at the same time, they're the one that are making recommendations for the use of these vaccines. So this is an in- incredibly egregious conflicts of interest, conflict of interest at both levels. I think this one probably even more so. Uh, and then here, they're, you know, we're creating these international treaties and pacts that basically say, you know, whatever our international parties do to prevent pandemics, you know, i.e. uptake of vaccines, which is ridiculous, uh, that's not, that should not be the only way to administer, to manage a pandemic. Um, You have to automatically adopt it. So what happened was that these guidelines were baked by Global Pharma in collaboration with their partners. And then they were hot potatoed right past the normal guideline process. To Nasi, who was their you know receiver, they caught the football, right? And locked in the guideline without any due process whatsoever. So this is an incredible breach in the normal process of guideline development. And what's particularly important to note here is that NASI is an immunization-specific group. So if you remember before, at the very beginning, we should have all the different colors, right? We should have the natural immunity group. We should have the treatment group. We should have the no treatment group. We should have the you know, let's look at all the collateral damage that your ideas are going to have group, right? You know, we should have a diverse group of panelists who basically take the data and weigh it independently and look at it. And then basically say, this is good for Canadians, or this isn't good for Canadians, considering all of the off-label options that are available in Canada, and then making a guideline that reflects the diversity of options, right? And then informs public health. But instead what you have is you have global guidelines, hot potatoed to a nasty specific quarterback who then locks the guidelines in. And then you remember what happens, right? Once the guidelines are locked in, who has to do it? Doctors. And then if they're in collaboration with the public yeah. health, then the public health basically sets all the messaging and communicates directly to the, po- the, the population. So the guideline, the doctor can't say anything different from the guideline now, because then he's at risk of losing his license, right?
0: And insurance.
1: And And the public health then has the full ability to communicate directly to the, the players here, which is their, the audience, right? So now global pharma, how many ways have they been influencing this whole process? You've got red here, red here, red here, red here. Read here, so you can see that there's all sorts of conflicts of interest. So it wouldn't be unreasonable at this point to say that if there's a recommendation that's coming through your email to get boosted, that there are other interests at play other than yours, Michael, that would be wanting you to get this treatment.
0: So what I w- and really when you look at public health and you and you look at health can like Health Canada and then I think public health is probably the provincial the provincial representation of that, you know, you would think that public health would be there to protect a doctor from an insurance company, just fraudulently saying, we're not going to insure you. Um, and then, and the guidelines being rigorous enough that it, it, it would fall within common medical practice, like you said, with the experts coming, but you know, this is actually what tipped my hat to waking, uh, fully awake to the entire situation. I just simply read the, lawsuit that the, uh, vaccine choice Canada submitted, uh, to, uh, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau and, and the, the minister of health and all of these different things, looking back at all of these conflicts of interest and looking back at how quickly these mandates were implemented. Mm-hmm. And it, this, this, this diagram is very helpful to show people exactly what happened. In fact, I just want to clarify the World Health Organization funded by the Gates Foundation, again, is a non-for-profit mm-hmm. or it's a non-governmental organization. And so what that means is, again, it's not only Big Pharma and now the Gates Foundation already working through a non-for-profit, then going to a world non-for-profit that's supposed to be some type of independent You know, maybe maybe over representing the published literature, right? You you would think that the World Health Organization would sit over and and uh, you know basically be another independent foundation that you know is rigorously in the published literature. No, you you had the 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 entire public health industry doing the talking points of outside players rather than developing their own policies, and then of course again, I'll just remind my listeners that that word guidelines quickly turned to mandates. So now, I, I'm sure you're going to get here, Deanna, but once the government steps in and makes a mandate, that also then makes all of these other players who have a conflict of interest completely null and void of responsibility because they'll always be able to say to the Mm -hmm. government, well, the government mandated our product and Mm -hmm. the government's always going to say, well, you said it was safe. And so Mm -hmm. it really creates a problem for those of us at the very bottom trying to receive legitimate personal care. Yeah. Keep going. This is great. We've got about seven more minutes.
1: Okay. I'm just going to whip you through this. So for me, what I want to know is that this was hot potato to this group. Why, who, who is, who does this group belong to? Who are these players? And so I just going to send you through, and we're going to walk through a heat map. This is basically something where you look at the degrees of conflict of interest. And so I've mapped out things that I think are interesting over here. They represent different types of financial conflicts of interest or research conflicts of interest. So the first one is indirect pharma funding, direct pharma funding research on influenza, flu shots and, or vaccine hesitancy and uptake. So basically they're in the promote vaccine category. I don't have a lot of respect yeah. for anybody who's been involved in the flu shots or indiscriminate vaccine uptake, because I don't think that they, you know, flu shots, I don't think work. And I think most people know that they don't work, you know and that most people don't need them. Although there is a big push for the flu shots now. Um, and vaccine hesitancy uptake government. is one, right? Vaccine hesitancy and uptake uh, is basically one of those blanket things, which I think is is a direct in, in direct opposition to informed consent, because every vaccine should have a risk benefit ratio, and you shouldn't ever be categorizing people like hesitancy and uptake. Those should never be actual. Those are pharma objectives, right? How do we remove an objection? Yeah. That's removing the hesitancy. Uh, how do we get increased sales? That's uptake, right? Doctors and clinical people should not be talking in that language. That's just cloaked pharma pharma speak, right? Uh, notable ties to Pfizer and Moderna. And um, PIs, or principal investigators of significant trials for Pfizer or Moderna. And then part of the global vaccine agenda, okay? So here are the 16 people. Okay, so that
0: last one... Sorry, just the last one there. Part of part of the global vaccine agenda. Would that be like how did you evaluate that? Like members of a board, uh, shareholders. Yeah, Bill,
1: part of um, they've received funds from Bill and Melinda Gates, Gavi, on the Vaccine Alliance. They've got Sepi ties. They're they've they've got connections to Welcome Trust, Eco Health Alliance, NIAID, or the World Health Organization. So supernatural. I just want everybody to know
0: that. If if you're listening to this right now, you should pause the video and you should go get some popcorn and like maybe your favorite drink, because this is about to get entertaining. And I, you know, Deanna, I'm so glad that you've got this 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 work done, but I just am I'm just gonna be blown away by how this chart moves and gets hotter and hotter. So, you know, hey, just grab some popcorn, but uh, that would you know pops at a certain level of heat and come back and uh, and enjoy this. Deanna, go for it. Let's show the chart. Okay. So these are
1: the 16 members of the NASI group that were um, uh, basically on the committee at the time when the COVID-19 vaccines were approved in December 2020. So things change over time, so they might not be the same people today as they were before. And, I'm, and these were meant to be the independent committee that approved the COVID-19 vaccines. Okay. So let's take a look at it. So here we have now that the people to keep an eye on, especially are Carolyn Quach Tan, who is the chair and Shelley Deeks, that's the vice chair. OK, and so we basically just went and looked to see if we could find any evidence by looking at the published literature. Right. Because remember, they have to disclose it at, at uh, conferences Uh, when they're doing publications, when they're on committees. So we're just looking at, you know, what is readily available in the public domain for um, their conflict. So let's just look at this. So there's the first level of conflict. So we have two people that made it past the indirect pharma funding, meaning that they've received some sort of, they've been associated with something that pharma has done at some point in time. So there's only two, Phillips Devall and Kristen Klein, who don't have any type of pharma funding. So if we go to direct pharma funding in the sense that they've actually had to disclose that they've received funds from pharma, then basically now we have this level. Um, so how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So more than half, right? More than 50% have received direct funding from pharma. So, Now, those are financial conflicts of interest in the most obvious kind, right? The kind that you would disclose in your conference presentation or your publication. So I'm including research conflicts because people who've been invested in respiratory viruses, vaccines for respiratory viruses and or vaccine hesitancy and uptake, I think that is a research agenda that should be called out because I don't think that that's there's appropriate, um, actually, maybe let me just go back and say this. So it's kind of like every, you know, if you can, you want to, if you want to get past the field, you just kind of move it, you know, bit by bit by bit, like the marker, right. If you're, you know, football analogy, I don't know yard lines or something like that. Right. So the flu vaccine people basically created these ex, you know, these clinics, you know, where they circumvented the personalized care. Uh, they're the ones who made great headway with, uh, public health. So what they've done is they've kind of laid the railroad tracks for the COVID-19 moment. And then COVID basically yep. just came running down the same rails. So let's see how many of them were very invested in respiratory vaccine really development in the Kristen, past.
0: So I'm rooting for Kristen. I'm, there we go. Kristen's so, still alive. Kristen's still alive. Yeah,
1: still alive. <laughs> yeah she's still I'm alive, sorry. but down go the chairs, right? Look at this. Yeah. So people here who've been recommending the flu the vac, or the COVID-19 vaccine are also people who are indiscriminately promoting vaccines, right? And who've been promoting flu shots or have been involved in flu shot research in the past. Uh, so then now notable ties to Pfizer and Moderna, right? So down goes the chair on another level. So now she's three chair, she's three levels down. And we're looking at a little less than 50%. Now, if you're the principal investigator of a a Pfizer or Moderna-sponsored trial, and the reason why I'm calling this out is that is tens of thousands of dollars in research. I mean, easily $50,000 going to your research institute if you are an investigator or like a a major investigator in one of these trials. Oh, there's Carolyn. (laughs) She's down again. And Soren also has... Uh, significant principal investigator research ties meaning that they're leading trials and then global vaccine ties we've got Shelley Deeks and Eve Dubay. so there's your heat map so we've got layer upon layer of conflict and I just want to commend Kristen Klein so far
0: she's the last woman yeah, standing Kristen's alive Kristen's alive there we go all right, yeah. uh, you know what, uh, Deanna? Just may 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 I get your permission? I'm sure that Andrew Di would love to just take this and then at some point later on in one of his podcasts, just have that entire thing burst into a live graphical flame. Because it, 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 I'm, I'm so glad you shared it in this way. It helps people understand. A heat map really does help people understand. You know, we're going right from that white, which which we could consider independent and neutral to red hot with passion and you know to these Mm -hmm. people are red hot and passionate about selling you a product and you look at that and you go there's only one person who you might think would be independent you've all there's only two people who have already received some type of funding and you and i both know how already a little bit of funding creates a conflict for you. you you're you have You have one, two, three, four, six people at the third level, so it's already heating up, and then the rest are the top three levels with your chair and your vice chair completely compromised at the most passionate levels, the hottest person to come and push. Something on you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this yeah. is very helpful. Thank you, so, Deanna. I, yeah, no, I hope you don't I, mind me having fun with your good research. No,
1: no, no. It's, it's fantastic. But I, I really think that what this should really convey to people is it was, first of all, inappropriate that the guideline require like the, 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 requirement for main making a guideline was sent to this group of people who are very vaccine specific, right? Because that precludes these people are, are immunizers, these people are vaccine people. So the fact that it was sent to them, and not to a broader panel of specialists was the first level of bias, right? And then it looks like it was sent to people who were very pro-vaccine, or maybe even pro-global agenda, right? So either they were having ties to... And certainly to, profiting. And, and, and certainly, and certainly profiting. Certainly receiving some profit at, at some level, right? So I think that it's really important to remember that that these are not people who are independent in the the way that we think that they're independent in the sense that they have no other interests but our own, right? And it would be... Now we can't say for sure that they're being influenced by these relationships or by the money that's being flowing to them. However, it would, it is human nature to think that that's the case. And it's, and it's, and it's such that we've had checks in our systems to make sure that this isn't the case. But when you got your email recommending your booster, what should have happened is you should have received this heat map with it. And then you could make an educated decision as to whether that is actually, you know, somebody that you want to listen to. So- my personal thing isn't that these researchers have had um, ties to, to pharma because, it, you know, in the vaccine, you can only use a vaccine. Uh, but, but that, A, we, we gave them the responsibility of, of making the guidelines for all of Canada. That was inappropriate and not within the normal operating procedures. And then secondly, that there's this much conflict that was never conveyed to the general public. You know, I think that this is really important to remember, but it's not over. I've got one last slide and that's to talk about how public health uses the media to talk to the people. And lo and behold, guess who funds the media? Pharma. And in fact, one thing that I really want to say, I actually had a conversation with the, the, the ex-VP of Global News and he was telling me that the media outlets are super compromised now. Uh, the reason being that uh, the bread and butter of the newsroom used to be uh, cable television. So, you know, cable television, you'd sell that and then you then the news would be the public service arm of, of that. And then they would, you know, have investigative journalists that told you the truth and they would relay that uh, to the, the public. Um, so this person who I, I can't disclose their name, but he basically told me that a number of years ago, um, when everything went online, we went to online streaming, and, and nobody was interested in cable television anymore, that that actually put a lot of those um, media outlets in a compromised position in a cash flow crunch. And so then they began to have to make money off of news, Right. So because they're now having to complete with compete with social media and it's all about click rates and, you know, advertising them becomes about how many views and all that business. Then all of a sudden they went from integrity and an honesty in journalism to getting rid of all of those people and basically hiring young people. Who could create sensational headlines and hype things up. And basically, whereas before what you had was you had somebody who was a, a talking head that was a, an actual investigative journalist with a reputation and they're, they're they they basically swore by their work. Now you have these younger, very good looking at times, um, you know news anchors and they're just basically reading off of teleprompters that have been collated with stories that are just being pumped down they have no background in order to be able to understand what what's being presented is actually true or not Uh, they're just basically reading off of their prompt and even more so uh, because there's such a difficulty you know earning money pharmaceutical companies can now buy airtime from media outlets, according to this source that I have, and pop in their own doctors with their scripts that then they go on and talk about how such and such emergency room is overflowing, or this is what happened to me, blah, 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 blah. And that person can be at the paid spokesperson of pharmaceutical company. And in any type of normal scenario, what you would have, if it was an advertisement, you would have them have to say, this was, you know, this was sponsored by, you know, this spot was paid by blah, blah, blah. So everybody would know the conflicts of interest, but because they're actually bringing in experts and posing it as stories paid by pharma. The, the viewer doesn't actually understand that that was a paid spot. Um, and then, of course, the pharmaceutical companies are probably the one of the greatest advertisers for media, especially in the States. Um, and so media outlets are very keen to make sure that they stay in the good side, the good books of their, their major sponsors, right? And on, in addition, guess what's big business? If they get to be the mouthpiece of public health, both scaring people into needing the vaccine, thinking that they need the vaccine, and then being one of the main ways in which public health communicates uh, you know, how to get the vaccine, guess how much money that is for them? So they're they're definitely profiting off of this whole vaccine moment, right? And you know, after And our we call, also
0: have very specifically within Go ahead. Sorry, Diane. I I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. You go ahead and finish that thought, and then I'll jump in.
1: No, no. So we're wrapping up here, but I think the last thing should be how you know we should change this to mandates and and talk about government because what media does, and this is a this is a strategy for pharma, right? So there's a there's a marketing strategy for pharma. So there's a pre marketing phase, and in the pre marketing phase, what they do is they develop they they raise awareness of the need for their clinical treatment in anticipation of the release of their phase three data. Okay? So let's just think about this, you know, uh, COVID hit in March and the vaccine was rolled out in December. And so everything from March through to December was COVID hysteria, right? It was so-and-so died and -and such-and-such hospital was overflowing and blah, 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 blah. Very light on stats high on drama, right? Um, and that is actually part of a pre-marketing campaign. And the design for that particular phase is to raise people's awareness of their need for a treatment. And then lo and behold, the launch, the vaccine was launched and, and it was, you know, it was the panache. It was the, it was the thing that we were looking for. So, um, so, at that point, the launch of the study and then they went into the marketing campaign. Everybody go get their vaccine. This vaccine clinics is open, blah, 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 blah. But I believe that the lockdowns, the masking and the nonstop, you know, propaganda related to COVID that we experienced prior to the launch of the vaccines fit perfectly a pharmaceutical company's media campaign a pre-marketing campaign and what that does is they've also learned that they can influence government so if the media gets people into a hype and basically convinces them that they need masking uh, and vaccines in order to stay safe then the the people will actually petition their government to force people to get the vaccine therefore we shift from a guideline to a mandate do you see how that works
0: Yes. And, and in Canada, I was going to say this earlier, that in Canada, of course, our media is paid for by our government as well. Our, our media is heavily subsidized by the government. Mm-hmm. So again, the moment Health Canada or Public Health Ontario uh, has a conflict of interest, rather than being an independent, um, you, know, you know, really, again, like, like you had mentioned, public health... If, if there was nine other circles around the NACI that were informing public health, that would make the public health recommendation uh, far more valid. But instead of nine other circles to the, to the right of it, as I face that chart, there was three other circles to the left uh, that were from out of country mm-hmm. and that were all deeply in with big pharma. Yeah. And so... Public health is literally not taking um, a multitude of of those experts and saying, great, from that we have the public's best interest in mind and we are independently, they're totally corrupted with it. And, of course, media is, t- is paid for by our government. $1.6 billion uh, goes towards Canadian media. This is, again, something that we've been saying from day one and full disclosure, if I can ever... St- you know, grow Liberty Coalition Canada big enough so that we're, you know, merged with some other great media network, we're trying to build one that might be a little bit more honest about these things. So full disclosure, just so I tell everybody my conflict of interest, this is why, you know, virtually anybody with a thinking mind should have been saying, wait, slow down. It cannot be all one sided. And I'll give you, I'll just finish up our our time with, with with a situation right now on the ground. You can walk around the U.S. right now. You can walk around in Canada right now. And in this fall season, many, many people are suffering from a viral infection. It's just going rampant around here and rampant around North America. You just anecdotally, we hear about it from people reporting in and and there's not nearly the hysteria that there was in the last two years about this normal viral season. And so for those of us who've been putting up our hand for two years going, wait, it's a normal viral season. Look, you get sick in the fall and you get sick near the spring. It's what happens. Why are we, why is everything amped up so far? It's simply because you had a pharmaceutical marketing campaign working behind the scenes with all of its players to hype up that particular season whether or not that happens again, whether or not that happens every season because now once you have like you like, like we've been talking about and like you presented, vaccines are so lucrative um, there is going to be pressure to return these mandates regularly the, you know you, the moment the government gets involved instead of standing between uh, these outside interests and their people, the moment they get involved with promoting these interests and turning guidelines to mandates is when, you know, the medical industry is eviscerated in the sense of informed consent. No, I hopefully that will. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I, to your point, I think that, um, you know, I'm not much of an activist. I like to think that I'm somebody who sits in the background and, you know, makes pretty charts and does research and tries to convey my findings to people if they want to hear it. Um, But I think that we're at a really critical moment here because if there's this much uh influence at so many different levels what they're gonna do is they're just gonna back off the pressure a little bit they're gonna wait till we all forget about it just like with the flu vaccine right they came in the flu vaccine and then you know we're always like oh my gosh that's so stupid and it's so annoying but you know they're still at it right year you know month they're still they're still going at it but then what they were doing is they were laying down railroad tracks right they actually opened up all these, you know. They had disconnected the doctor-patient relationship, and they they created the vaccine clinics. Public health took this new thing. They like their new power. They they like their new position, right? Um, so, Nancy has made a lot of money and and probably gotten very far off of a lot of this COVID stuff. So, to think that this is all just going to go away because everybody figured out that COVID's not a thing is very naive what we have to do is we have to go back now and we have to root all of this out and we have to correct it. Or, you know, we're going to have to say goodbye to informed consent once and for all, because taking it to the level of mandates basically is, is laid the railroad tracks for them to run down those tracks again. But you know, how much further will they take it next time, right? Once you bolt that pharma engine onto it. So I think it's really something that we need to take seriously. We need to get, you know, we need to get concerned citizens together and we need to advocate our government and we need to get legislation in place to, to prevent this type of thing from happening. Um, but unfortunately, from what I can see, is that the global pharma networks are working overtime through uh, entities like the United Nations and the World Health Organization to, to create treaties that will require company or countries to override their current systems and bolt in their guidelines in if in the, in the next pandemic which they can if you're associated with the NIAID cook up in the next biolab right i mean they've got these labs that that can create all sorts of things like there was one lab in the states that created a strain that was 80% you know a coronavirus strain that was 80% lethal so you know it, it's all it's all quite concerning. Um, and I haven't even gotten into the infiltration of pharma and academia yet. That's a whole other presentation. And we've got somebody at the CCCA that's working on this. But I just want to do before I wrap up and I am wrapping up now, just do a, a big um, call out to uh, Elidio Martins and Liam Sturgis. Liam is the one that did the heat map for us for uh, for NASSI. And Elidio is the one that uh, went through and and did a lot of the research and checked all the the references and stuff in this presentation. So thanks to you both. And thanks to the people at CCCA that uh, support all this type of work. And of course, COVID sense. Um, So let's wrap up. So we've got public health officials have been presenting vaccines as safe and effective and continue to state that the risks outweigh the costs. However, um, what we have to notice is that that actually is no longer a personal benefit statement because they don't know the actual person. What this is, it's basically a societal benefit statement, meaning that this, the, the bene- it's benefiting the stakeholders to recommend vaccines at this point.
0: And that's it. I think those are That's a great phrase to remind everybody. It is benefiting the stakeholders. So friends, look, this has just been another research project presented to you by Deanna McLeod and the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and COVID Sense. Deanna, we're so thankful for your research. Um, I really hope that that heat map does find some type of graphical completion in a full-out flame on social media. But uh, the reality is that... Uh, I've been trying to be a little bit um, lighthearted because we've been seeing, we, we've been talking about this for so long, and you now, Deanna, have prevented, uh, presented the clear evidence about it. Um, I, I'm hoping that people will take this to heart. So, folks, share this video out. And again, we're thankful so much for Deanna to be with us. Uh, give us a five star rating. Let's try to get this video as far as we can. It's going to be a New Year video. So Deanna, I won't see you over the Christmas uh, season. So uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And everybody, Godspeed.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for having me on.